Welcome to the University of New South Wales, Canberra, Australian Naval History video and podcast series, produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this episode and return for others in the series. I'm Peter Jones, a retired Vice Admiral and a member of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra at the Australian Defence Force Academy. This video and podcast episode discusses one of the most significant developments in the Royal Australian Navy during World War II. It was the formation of the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service, or the RANS, as it became known. The RANS was established on the 21st of April 1941, and just a fortnight later, 14 RANS arrived at the new communications establishment, HMAS Harmon, on the outskirts of Canberra. By the war's end, the RANS represented 10% of the total naval personnel strength. But the creation of the RANS was not universally welcomed, and its formation was viewed with horror by some old salts and politicians. To tell us about the fascinating story of the RANS, I'm joined here today by Dr. Catherine Sperling, who is one of the leading authorities on the history of the RANS, and most recently wrote the book HMAS Canberra, Casualty of Circumstance. Commander Christine Renhenzani, who has written extensively about women in the Australian Defence Force. And Commander Alison Westwood, the current commanding officer of HMAS Harmon. So first off, um, Christine, can you just uh, really give us a, a feel for, in World War II, um, we were about to talk about the RANS, but in World War I there were some women serving in the Australian Navy. Can you talk about that? Yes, Peter, there were a few women serving in the Navy in World War I, which is what, it's not really a widely known history. Seven women from, seven nurses from the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital were um, commissioned to serve on Navy's first hospital ship, first and last hospital ship. and. It was the passenger liner Grantala, which was commissioned as HMAS Grantala. And the women didn't know where they were going initially. And so they were, had to pick their own uniform. So they, in the tradition of Navy, they picked white, which was a good thing because they went up into the tropics, up to Townsville, and uh, served in the Rebol campaign. And after the defeat of the German, German in um, the Pacific area, Germany in the Pacific area, they, um, the ship returned to Sydney and the war was coming to an end and the women were um, left, they left the Navy, left their service. And, but some of them did go on to join the uh, Australian Army Nursing Service and uh, one of them actually went overseas to join uh, a military service overseas. So they were really the first women in the, in the Australian Navy? They were, yeah, and they only served for about six months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So turning to World War II, uh, Catherine, can you just um, uh, give a feel for who were the major players who were driving uh, the, the movement to have women in the Royal Australian Navy? Am I allowed to correct you, Peter, because... Uh, Please do. <laughs> in April, the women were enrolled, mm. not enlisted, and they yep. weren't enlisted until a year later because the, the then Minister for Navy said, under no circumstances will there be women in my Navy. So, and who was that? And that was uh, uh, Billy Hughes, the little digger. With uh, 
there were women who were trying to get into the Navy. By this stage, the, the WAF, the Air Force and the Army had accepted women. And Mrs. McKenzie, Florence McKenzie, was uh, an, an engineer and she started the Women's Emergency Signal Corps and was training. She not only uh, designed a, a special arm to treat Morse better, but she encouraged women to come in. So they were in their bottle green uniforms. And she really complained all the time to the uh, commander, Jack Newman, who was actually the, the director of communication, was uh, a very formidable man. And he wanted women uh, in his signals corps because there were very few women, uh, very few wireless operators at that stage. Uh, there was also a lady called Mrs. Lillian Cook who started the Women's Naval Service and they, was, they were trained by the Navy uh, with naval instructors but they again were doing work uh, unofficially as well as mine watchers up in Brisbane who were put in bunkers. Women were put in bunkers up in the Brisbane River to uh, gauge all shipping that came down the Brisbane River and, and they were actually commanded by a uh, Lieutenant Commander Bowman who was uh, a Royal Australian Naval man and uh, officer, sorry, and they uh, were taken up to Brisbane River at night time and left in a bunker until the morning and to sight and report on all shipping. And <laughs> it was a pretty bad experience too. So just going back to that uh, original formation, so mm -hmm. Mrs. McKenzie or Mrs. Mack is, is the, um, as she was uh, properly known, so she wrote to the Navy, is that right? Yes, and Commander Newman uh, wanted wireless operators desperately and was asking the Navy, please, can we take these women in? But as I said before, uh, the then Prime uh, Minister for Navy didn't want women in his Navy. So uh, they sort of were enrolled to then come to Harmon and uh, Alison would be better positioned to speak on that. Yeah, so, so Alison, 1941, the first contingent of 14 rands then arrive at, at um, Harmon. What do we know about what, what happened? Well, in April 1941, they would have arrived to some very challenging circumstances, um, I think both professionally uh, in terms of acceptance at work um, and also the physical conditions. It was a new establishment and only just been stood up. Um, the facilities were, um, were not very palatial, um, so they had dormitories and huts uh, to live in. Um, they had uh, obviously the communications facilities there. Um, they had a mess hall. Uh, eventually they got a recreation hall. Nicely it had a piano so they were able to have concerts and plays and things. So a little bit of recreation but for instance their huts, they had um, baths that were um, uh, heated by chip heaters which meant um, they had to get a delivery of wood every day and they had to politely ask the sailors to chop their wood for them. Um, if they were so uh, uh, gracious in, in actually doing that. Um, and there's some uh, good stories about if you didn't get your allocation of wood and your neighbour was more fortunate to have more wood, then you'd actually uh, go and steal the neighbour's wood um, so you could have your bath. Um, but long hours as well, um, they were shift working. Um, and so uh, in the middle of the night, they'd walk from one end of the, the establishment, um, as it was, um, up to the other end. Um, and they would uh, be challenged generally by two guards uh, and, uh, as they went up to their shift and they would have to tell them their password for the day to actually proceed. So the expectation was always two guards. 
the army actually eventually took over the, um, the guard role so that they could free up the sailors to go to sea. Um, so they're older gentlemen that came in just specifically to do the job. Um, and then they started using three. So on the first couple of occasions that they got challenged the third time, there was much fright and squealing. Um, so not much of the passwords were actually, were actually set out. Um, but work-wise, um, they were there to do a job. And I, and I think what the stories tell me and show me is how committed they were and how courageous they were in actually um, paving the way um, and taking this seriously and actually really wanting to contribute to the war. So when they arrived, if I understand it right, there was a, a problem with uniforms that they didn't, didn't even yep. have proper uniforms. Do, no. do you know what happened there? Um, so they stayed in uh, the, the green uniform um, uh, for their women's um, uh, emergency signalling corps uh, until they could actually get uh, uniforms made and fitted. Uh, and they were modelled off the RN uh, uniform, so it's quite a winter weight uh, uniform, um, but I think they've got the shoes to start with, is my recollection. <laughs> and uh, just going back to Mrs Mack, um, I understand that she was in attendance on, the, on, on that day when they arrived, is, is that right? Uh, yeah, she had a, she used to accompany the, the women um, to, to and from and um, including settling them in if they were still um, down in, um, for instance, down in Lonsdale for the, for the second intake. She would, she would travel and, and make sure that they were actually looked after. Okay. Yep. So Christine, um, they created the, Royal, the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service. Why did, didn't they just have the women join the RAN? It was because that um, the, the, the RAN was predominantly for a men's service. It was a men's service and men went to sea. And, but workforce shortages required the support of women. And so they created an auxiliary service which was to supplement the workforce during the war. So it wasn't to be, they weren't part of the RAN, they were a supplement. And it was the same with all the women's auxiliary services that were formed. Yep. The, the RANS was just one of them and it was a supplement. So at the end of the war, when the men returned home uh, to take up their, their role in society again and they were discharged from services, then the, that, uh, the women had to make way for the men because that was their primary role as the breadwinner in society and women went back to their domestic duties. With your experience in the Navy, would you say that it was particularly hard because the other services were already formed it was particularly hard because of perhaps the suspicion about women at sea. Yes, I mean, there yes. was this uh, sea is a man's job. Mm. And right. it, it was particularly that whole genre of go to sea, that no women on ships, it's very superstition and all that sort of thing, I think. I think that's it because the other two services had uh, no trouble at all in starting the service. Creating their creating the service yeah. and the, the numbers that the the Air Force and the Army took mm. in compared to the, the Navy, it was just, um, you know, we, we um, enlisted about 2,000 women overall yep. during that period. And whereas the Air Force, I think, was we're looking at something like 70,000. I think, I think it was said very well when a, a survivor of HMAS Canberra came back, which was sunk in the Guadalcanal campaign. And he arrived and there were volunteers in these naval uniforms that 
hadn't really been prescribed properly at that stage, women who came and offered him some tally ribbons and, and, and razor blades. And he looked up and he says, oh, gored bloody women. And I think that was the whole attitude of the, of the high echelon within the RAN. They just were not comfortable with women in their service. And that's why it was the last service formed, or last auxiliary service. And it was kept so small. It was, wasn't until uh, it was actually written into law that women were actually enlisted in, in the Navy. Mm. Okay, so just going back to the story then. So the first contingent went to Harmons, which was essentially a communications. communications. Uh, Wireless receiving mm. and transmission station. Okay, so that would communicate with the fleet from, yeah, uh, so from they, Navy headquarters and fleet headquarters. Yeah, so they um, communicated not only, so they had a wireless um, service to sea, um, where they transmitted on several frequencies at the, any given time um, to be able to get the message through because of the atmospherics and the skipping yep. and all that sort of thing. But they also communicated um, across the Commonwealth or the Empire as it was mm. called back then. So across to Whitehall, um, uh, Singapore was another location and to New Zealand, um, also up to Darwin of course because there was another key communications node um, up, in the, up there. Um, but the interesting part was, and, and what I find significant um, about the development of RANDs is the amount of contribution they made, particularly to the communications um, branch, because by, I think, um, two years in, they were the biggest contingent at Harman um, mm. of all the contingencies. Mm. And that included um, you know, um, men from the, the uh, Royal Australian Navy, the RN, and also um, the US uh, Navy were there as well, as well as reserves. Um, so they were certainly um, the backbone, I think, of the communications uh, back in, in World War II. Um, and for instance, um, I can, Marion Stevens, who is, um, correct me, recruit number five. Yes. She was number five. She tells a lovely story a and, um, and I guess a sign of that level of contribution and how seriously they took it. Um, she was providing communications to a place called Batavia, um, which was in Java, which were eventually fell to the Japanese during the war. Um, and right up to the end, she was talking about how she continued to receive the communications. Um, and um, she didn't want to cut them off. She, because of, she could hear what they were going through and she could, could feel, you know, that the inevitable was going to happen. Um, and so she kept on going with the codes and the codes and um, they gradually went through their codes and wore them down to the last one um, and then they transmitted in the clear that the Japanese were there mm. um, and that they were trying to get out and basically keep smiling was the words that they used and um, that really hit home for her. She said it was, a, you know, it was a tear to eye. Um, there was a good story end to that story though because that communications note ended up um, retransmitting not so long after, so a period of time after, and they'd made it to Colombo. So um, she said it was nice to hear that code again and work out it was them. So mm -hmm. um, she yeah. said it was a good ending. But She was the first woman to be promoted to, to chief. chief. Yes, she was. And in yeah. fact, it was Jess Prane, Ran Jess Prane, who sent the message throughout the Navy, through yep. all shipping, yep. that Australia was at war with the Japanese. Mm. 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 So, yeah. so Catherine, after that initial uh, induction of women into HMS Harmon, it was decided to also um, have uh, RANDs go to Melbourne. Can you pick up the story there? They were sent down there because at that stage the naval headquarters were in Melbourne and they needed signalers as well, or wireless operators down there as well. 
So a contingent went down uh, by train and Mrs. Mack actually accompanied them. Uh, when they arrived, there was no accommodation. Uh, they had to go to the, in those days they had on railway stations, Travellers Rest uh, volunteer organisations to try to find people who had no accommodation accommodation. And they were travelling in, uh, they weren't paid. Uh, one, day, one day they had to pool their money to, uh, to buy, uh, their food was one Freddo frog each. <laughs> As, as, and to get by tram into naval headquarters to work. So again, it was very much a case of the Navy dragging its feet. Um, the resistance was very strong. When they finally implemented women in the Navy, enlisted the women in the Navy, yep. there were no uniforms. I think the first issue was an armband that said RANS and a pair of sand shoes. Uh, one of the first women to report in Melbourne uh, was told to report in her WESC uniform, the, the green uniform, and she said, I wasn't a member of that. So they asked, so she appeared in her girl guide uniform. So <laughs> it was a case of really not ready, but there were many, many women who wanted to join the Navy. And it was, a, it was a disappointing for them that a lot of them just left and we, they got tired of waiting and they went and joined the WAF and the, uh, the AWAS, the, the um, women in the Army. So to follow on your point, I understand that Jack Newman pooled and yes. provided money for their uh, yes. for their pay until their pay came through. Yes, it was it was pretty. In fact, he represented uh, the Rands uh, at a conference uh, towards the end of the 1941 uh, because they didn't have a leader of their own. Yeah. Whereas uh, the uh, army and the air force were had leaders in pro in women officers in charge at that stage. So, what was the the role of the Rands in in uh, in Melbourne? They were writers at headquarters and they were signalers, so that was the main role. They were very restricted uh, until they managed to get a proper intake. And then they actually did amazing roles within the, the war. They, they were range markers at Cerberus, uh, which, which is women going out just in the trench underneath where all the uh, armour is being fired, where, where sailors are learning how to shoot weapons. And they were so cold, <laughs> they wore uh, men's pajamas under their uniform. There was, uh, oh, and one, one of the women told me that she said it was, a, it was a bad summer, we killed 37 copperhead snakes in the mm. trenches. Um, there were women doing roles then actually that they didn't participate again in. So in Melbourne, there was a fleet radio unit in Melbourne, yeah. uh, or Frummel as it was called. Can you just describe that and what the role of the RANDs were in Frummel? Um, well, I think Christine might I be better. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same, basically the same as what they were doing in Harman, was it? Mm. Yeah. Which was, so Frummel's role was if some... Receiving and, and sending signals, signals and, and encoding yeah. signals yeah. to be sent and so in it was intercepting. Yeah, so it was all done by, by Morse code. Yes. Mm. Um, so all your communications was done by Morse code. Um, most of them did it about 30 words per minute, provided they had the typewriter. Um, it's a bit diff more difficult if you had to um, hand scribe. Um, so again, it was receiving everything from the fleet or from, from headquarters or from, from England and, and actually transmitting messages as well. So, so they were involved not only in the communications, but also in the team that was breaking the yes. Japanese codes. Yeah. Yep, they were. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so we've talked about um, the, that transition as the organisation grew and then there the became the, uh, 
the uh, the point where there were ran officers. Now, one of the most famous was Joan Carey. Alison, do, do you know um, or do you know Joan, much about Joan Carey's service? Joan, yeah, um, a little bit. Um, the, the, it's, it's hard to find full detail on her, but um, she was certainly in the first uh, intake um, to do the officer training, um, otherwise known as um, the, the second eight, because she was in the second intake of RANS uh, into the Navy, and um, or otherwise known as um, Commander... Um, uh, Edwards, sorry. Um, Jack Newman. Jack, Jack Newman. J Jack Newman's girls, mm. so one of those, yeah. uh, which goes to the point about, I think, his uh, level of commitment to actually yeah. getting the RANS in uh, because he trained, pretty much trained that first group. So he would have trained Joan. Um, Jane was in that group that went to Melbourne with Mrs Mack, yes. trying to find the accommodation <laughs> yeah. in the cold and the wet and with and no eating money. Chocolate frogs, and eating chocolate frogs. <laughs> um, but they ended up at one of the um, the Travellers Aid Society uh, accommodations in not so salubrious area of Melbourne. Mm. Um, but they were looked after. In fact, um, the society looked after them very well. Joan celebrated her 21st birthday there while she was on her eight-week training course for um, officer training. Um, so she went on, and her first uh, one of her first postings was to Lonsdale to uh, to the um, uh, Navy uh, headquarters there. Um, it was called something different back in that Lonsdale? time. Lonsdale? Yes, yeah. So anyway, so pretty much the headquarters, Navy headquarters down in, in Victoria. Um, and she she worked um, for the commander there, I think, for a considerable a couple of years. Um, interestingly, she was the only female to serve in a combat zone during World War II. Yeah. Um, and she uh, went with the commander to, I think it was Colombo, uh, under Lord, Lord Mountbatten's staff um, for a period of a few months towards the end of the war. Um, she was also significantly had about uh, 400, uh, a couple of hundred people under her charge um, during while she was a second lieutenant. Um, and uh, when she left the service, um, she did that from Rushcutter, which was a station up in uh, Sydney, uh, and uh, which is no longer in existence. I think it decommissioned in about 56. Mm. Um, so yeah, so a short career, but um, a significant career in terms of being a, a pathfinder for uh, women in the Navy. Yeah. Mm. One of the most famous rants was Ruby Boy. Um, Christine, can you just explain what her background was and what she achieved during the war? Yeah, Ruby has the distinction of being the only woman to serve in the Coast Watchers organisation during World War II. She was living on an island uh, in the Solomon Islands I think it's Vanakoro. Dalagi. Uh, I think she Delagi. started out here, Dalagi. Yeah. yeah, so in that group of islands and her husband mm. had, um, he managed a kari plantation mm. and timber mill. And when uh, the Japanese came into the Pacific and the Australia sent a, a boat to repatriate all the Europeans, but Ruby and her husband decided to stay. So her husband looked after the timber timber mill, he kept that going because uh, he thought that the, the wood was an essential resource at the time and Ruby volunteered to take on the Coast Watch uh, duties and it was, she worked extensively long hours and in rugged conditions mm. to um, send all of the ship's movements back to Australia and in fact the, she did such a good job, the Japanese were quite 
and um, enraged by her and they started bombing the island. Mm. And at this stage, the Navy was really worried because uh, one of her fellow coast watchers in New Guinea had uh, been caught and he was um, killed because he was considered a spy by the mm. Japanese. So what the Navy decided to do was to commission Ruby as an honorary RANDS officer and they uh, dropped a uniform to her by parachute mm. and, she, and she did a fabulous job during the war. And women like that, that's the contribution that they made in really difficult circumstances mm. uh, because the Japanese were on their doorstep. And she, she was awarded the British Empire Medal for her services, which is similar to the Order of Australia Medal. Mm. And she also received the Pacific Star and the 1939-45 Star and the 1939-45 War Medal. And in, interestingly, we're here at ADFA uh, recording this, and a accommodation block is named after Ruby. Mm. Yeah. Now I understand that she was a um, uh, centre of attention in terms of Admiral Halsey was uh, amazed that this woman was doing such a dangerous task mm. and went out of his way to try and fly in to meet her at, at her island. So she certainly was, um, had achieved considerable fame at, at that time during the... Yeah. And, and this was a, a woman who was 51 years old and a mother, mm -hmm. and uh, she could have easily taken the, the easy route and returned home, mm -hmm. but she was just that devoted to uh, her country and to her place in fighting the war. Yeah. yeah. So Catherine, just looking at that contribution in that range of areas we've sort of touched on, how, how would you um, describe that, that contribution of, by women in the, uh, the naval service during the war? I think it was quite wonderful. The Navy actually couldn't have done without them. Uh, it's unfortunate that they dragged their feet so much. Um, if we can actually even, the first RANS officers training course wasn't until uh, 1943, yeah. and uh, February 1943, and which was, and I think the first director uh, wasn't appointed until 1945. Mm, just towards the end of the war. Just before the end of the war. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sheila McClements was a lawyer. She did a wonderful job in trying to implement better conditions yep. uh, and consideration for the for her RANs. But it was a hard fight, and um, as Christine said, we were the Navy restricted women in to very small numbers compared to the large numbers accepted by the Army and the Air Force. And this this to a point was understandable because the primary role for the Navy was to go to sea, and women were not allowed to go to sea. But there was, as Alison pointed out, there was only one woman who made it overseas, uh, whereas the Army and the Air Force allowed their women to be sent overseas. The Navy said no. And in, they wouldn't even let them go to Darwin until almost at the end of the war, and it was safe. So I think because of the lack of numbers, I think it's unfortunate that the amazing role that these very hardy women mm -hmm did in, in for the Navy during World War II has been largely unnoticed. Yeah. So Christine, um, at the end of the war, there was the demobilisation and part of that was the, the disbandment of the RANDs. Can you just describe what happened there? Well, as I said previously, the RANDs were classed as an auxiliary service. So they were only a supplement to the RAN, 
and it was always perceived that at the end of the war, uh, the services would be, the auxiliary services would be disbanded, and the RANS being one of those, it was disbanded. Um, so I think everyone recognised that that was going to happen. What they didn't foresee was that with full employment um, in the 1950s, Australia's commitment to the Korean War, that there were workforce shortages mm. and there were, men had to be released to more men to go to sea. And so that's when the RANs were reformed. And so, and when was that? That was in 19, the end of 1950, but it wasn't until like 1951 that they started to uh, recruit and enlist women. Um, so I think the Navy leadership were, as Catherine said, and they, they were still um, not keen to reform the RANs, but the workforce shortages were so drastic that they needed the women again to supplement. Um, yeah, and there was also this, uh, if you're a married woman, you can't serve your mm. country. And, yeah. and, and that was the big, the big yeah. stepping stone. Is that it was up to about 19. 56 or was it 66? Married women. Oh yeah. no, that was... No, 73. 73, yep. wow. Yep, uh, 69. The, 69. Navy, the Navy I was in, you yep. had to leave if you got married or wow. pregnant. that's amazing. <laughs> so that was 19... Yeah. The public service didn't change till 1969. Right, yeah. So the Navy was a bit slower. It was about 1972, 1973. I think it was 73. Yeah. It was about 69, the same time as the public service. Yeah. But we, it took a lot longer for the policy to trickle through, mm. even though that was the legislated time. And 73 was when the um, pregnancy yes. bar was lifted, yes. um, which was interesting what Catherine said, couldn't be in the RANS and be married. And yet women were allowed to be in the RANS in World War II and be married. Mm. And the RENs, who were sort of our services um, British counterpart. Yeah, British counterpart. Yeah. They they were allowed to have married women in the Wrens. Yes. So, yeah. um, and so they lost all of this expertise. Um, and not just the expertise of women that had been in World War Two in the serving and during in the Wrens, mm. but women yeah. that had professional um, ability that could have really yeah, served the Rands very well. I think Ellison's captain of Harmon. I think uh, the captain of Harmon about 1943 had to decide what to do with the first Rand who got married. Mm. She was faced, <laughs> she was brought up for, towards, on a charge towards, uh, for the captain to judge what, what discipline she should face. I mean, can you imagine? No, <laughs> no, I cannot doing imagine that. doing that today. <laughs> yeah. No. And no. he didn't, he had no idea. Yeah. So he just said, go away. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the point was, once they disbanded, they really saw that from that point on, they yeah. actually did have to have women in the Navy. From yeah. and, and mm. So they didn't regret disbanding them initially, but I think um, in hindsight that they did, um, it would have been much easier mm. for them to, to continue. Because mm. yeah. it was only a few short years. Yeah, it was 46, yeah. I think the last, yeah. the last, Ran was uh, left the service, yeah. and, and a lot of those women actually want to stay in. Yeah. They really yeah. did. They yeah. they loved the navy. Uh, mm. They they joined for the same reason men join. Yeah. Mm. So if I can just uh, conclude with asking each of you your 
final thoughts about the, the service of uh, women in the Navy in World War Two. Alison, what's your final oh, thought? I mean, reading some of the stories, I mean, they were very resilient, um, courageous women. They had a lot of guts um, and my, I tip my hat to them um, in terms of what they had to go through. Um, but um, their dedication paved the way for people like me to be where I am today. Um, and I think we should continue to capture those stories and understand those stories um, because that history um, brings us, you know, where we are today and has really paved the way um, for women in the Navy now. Mm. So, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Christine? Alison's right. They were our initial pioneers and mm. throughout the World War II RANDs, you look at the, the reformation of the RANDs, um, there's pioneers all through. Mm. Know, because there's just been so many barriers mm. broken down, mm. but these women were the first pioneers. And, uh, you know, they just did it of so many different jobs as well, jobs yeah. that we, um, when the RANDs were reformed, that they couldn't even do, mm. even though they'd proved that they could do them. Yeah. And uh, so that's taken a lot of time to break all that, those barriers down. But they left a legacy. Um, for women mm. and a legacy that says that women can achieve the mission if they're given the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Catherine. I think they've said it very well. Uh, I've got nothing further to add. It's just they were they We still have some alive, and they wear their medals proudly, mm. and so they should. And uh, I love uh, talking to them. It's just a, a, an inspiring experience. Well, thanks very much. Sadly, that is all we have time for. My thanks to Catherine Sperling, Christine Bridgehenzanzani and Alison Westwood for their insights and my thanks to you for joining us. For more information on this series, please visit the University of New South Wales Canberra Naval Studies Group website. To find us, simply Google Naval Studies Group and the University of New South Wales Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. We look forward to your company for the next episode. Bye for now.